Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. The SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started during this work from home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And really what we're trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provided our global SALT conference series, which our guest today has attended in the past, I believe in 2017. Welcome Governor Jeb Bush to SALT Talks. Uh, governor Bush was the 43rd governor of the state of Florida, serving from 1999 to 2007. Uh, he was the third Republican elected to the state's highest office and the first Republican in the state's history to be reelected. Uh, he was also most recently a candidate for the Republican presidential nomination in 2016. During his two terms as governor, uh, Governor Bush championed major reform of government in areas ranging from health care and environmental protection to civil service and tax reform. And under, Governor's Bush, uh, under Governor Bush's leadership, uh, Florida established a bold accountability system in public schools and created the most ambitious school choice program in the nation. And Governor Bush really presided over the economic boom that now defines the state of Florida. Uh, he's also known for his leadership during two unprecedented back-to-back -back hurricane seasons which brought eight hurricanes and four tropical storms to the state of Florida in less than two years. Uh, Governor Bush previously served as a pres presidential professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania. He also served as a visiting professor and fellow at Harvard University. An executive professor at Texas A&M University has been awarded several honorary doctorates from collegiate institutions across the country. Uh, Governor Bush currently serves as the chairman of Finback Investment Partners, LLC, as well as of Doc Square Capital, both merchant banks which are headquartered in Coral Gables, Florida. If you have any questions for Governor Bush during today's talk, a reminder that you can, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's uh, interview is Anthony Scaramucci. You might have heard of him. He's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. He's the chairman of SALT. He also uh, helped support Governor Bush's nomination for president uh, in 2016 before eventually joining the Trump campaign. But uh, Anthony, I'll turn it over to you for the interview. Yeah, yeah, Jeb, I don't know if you caught that. You might have heard of him. Okay, that was the first shot at me to get the salt <laughs> talk started, okay? Just wanna make sure you know that, Jeb. You're in, the middle, you're in the middle of a crossfire, okay? I don't know if it's famous or infamous, Governor, but oh, people have okay. heard of him, here, you know? Here he goes. Jeb, I miss you, man. I miss you. Those were good days back in 2016. So I want to go back, way back, and I, we always ask this question about uh, something we couldn't really find about you on Wikipedia or something that's been written about you, but just something about your life that you would like to share with us that we just wouldn't know. And you have one of the more well-covered families in the world, for that matter. Uh, you know, as an example, why did you go to the University of Texas? Many of your family members, including your dad, went to Yale after Phillips Andover Academy. Why did you decide to settle in South Florida versus staying in Texas? You know, we're, tell us some of those things before yeah. we get started on some of the core policy stuff. Anthony, it's great being with you uh, and John. Um, I look forward to the dialogue between you guys. But um, first of all, the Wikipedia thing is interesting. When I was running, uh, I was at a Rotary Club in Manchester and this guy gets up and I'm, I went on Wikipedia to see if I had anything in common with our guest speaker. And it turns out we do have two things in common. Like me, he's an avid rock climber, and he had a—he he just wanted to be a Hollywood uh, movie star. Either <laughs> which is true. So it turns out there's a game: unemployed kids that have Cheeto stains on their T-shirts in the basement of their parents' home play the game of how long you can keep some 
something that's not a fact on someone's Wikipedia page. And they play this game constantly. And so uh, that was somehow deleted later on. Um, <laughs> but what my Wikipedia page probably doesn't say is that I fell in love with my wife, now married for 47 years. I fell in love with her uh, at first sight when I was 17 years old. Um, I went down to Mexico as part of a exchange program when I was at, in high school. And it changed my life. So my life is BC before Columba and AC after Columba. Um, I didn't want to go to, I wanted to go back home. So I went to the University of Texas. because Was she a Florida resident yet or no? Because no, Mexico. You met, her, you met her in Mexico, right? So why did you guys settle in Florida? Um, well, first I got, I went, we got married in Austin, Texas, and um, we went to Venezuela. Uh, I worked for a bank. I was the youngest bank uh, rep in, in Caracas, Venezuela. I was 25 at the time or 24. And when I came back home, I worked in my dad's campaign in 1980. And I, it, now Houston is one of the most diverse cities in the world, but back then it wasn't. And I, my children did not speak English as their first language. They spoke Spanish. And I felt more comfortable. Um, I wanted to be out for my dad's shadow, which was a stupid idea. My, my dad's shadow didn't stop at the Houston city limits. Uh, and I wanted to um, you know, do my own be my own man, of course, but I also wanted a place that was more welcoming for um, my multicultural uh, bilingual family. And so I picked Miami and got, had a great partner and off I went. And, and Miami, for that matter, is blessed to have you. It's always the state of Florida. And as John mentioned, I think these are just important stats. You, you reduced taxes by 19 billion in the state of Florida. You, you veto 2 billion in spending, and then you, while you were doing that, you simultaneously increased the reserves from 1.3 billion to 9.8 billion, and you were known as the education governor uh, while you were doing all that. So, so lay the groundwork for us about that time in your life uh, where you were executing policy that was actually enhancing the quality of life of people, and take us to where we are today in terms of the body politic and how do we yeah. get back to that time? You know, uh, there were a lot of governors doing bigger things back then um, in the 90s and the early 2000s for sure. And, and politicians were rewarded for advocating bigger ideas and then executing on them. Um, when I campaigned in 1998, I laid out what I wanted to do in, in vivid detail. It was very controversial at the time, but it gave me a mandate to do it. And as part of it, I went to visit 250 schools as a candidate. I was all in. I mean, and now policy has taken way back seat, the total back of the bus. And now you're, you're rewarded for um, how, how angry you are or how you can you know, understand people's legitimate angst and anger in this country today, rather than saying, here are a set of policies that if we fix this, your anger will subside because your life will be better. So that change is a cultural change. Um, it, it was uh, very different when I was governor and we need to get back to it. Our democracy doesn't work if it's all about yelling and screaming at each other. The debate was a good example of it. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to, it was heartbreaking. I couldn't watch the thing. It was so sad uh, that we've gone so far away from uh, the advocacy of ideas that can make a difference in people's lives. So, so Jeb, just more of a philosophical question for me because I'm really trying to figure it out myself and I'm curious about your opinion. Is it a top-down thing or a bottom-up thing or a combination of the two? You know, would, you know, it, would better leadership make the difference or would better policy or what, 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 what's your sense of all that? 
I think a lot about this because I, I do think it's bigger than the current occupant of the White House. I think it is a cultural phenomena. A, two things are happening. Our culture has changed. The baby boomer generation, which I'm a part of, has kind of run its course. And there is a new culture that is, um, that is more vulgar, uh, more hateful, I think, more antagonistic, less, less caring about our fellow man. And then there's a lack of a shared identity that is the, the shared identity that really is the glue that keeps America going has eroded. The combination of those two things, I think, create the political environment, not the other way around. Politics is a reflection of our culture. Right. It isn't a leading indicator of our culture. So I think there's a cultural shift that's going to happen and it's gonna happen now, we're in the midst of it and hopefully it'll be um, more unifying, more caring, more loving. Um, I think Gen Z and millennials will lead the way. Uh, they're, they're, they're much maligned, particularly by people my age. I don't think we got a whole lot to be bragging about, to be honest with you. <laughs> I don't know why we're, we're out there saying how bad the next generations are. Uh, we, we screwed it up and, um, and now we have the politics we have. So the good news, Anthony, is in my mind at least, uh, culture isn't linear. It doesn't, we're not gonna march off a cliff. There will be a spark as there has been in the 60s and there was in the 19th century with the uh, Second Great Awakening that created the, pro the beginnings of the prohibition movement, the abolition movement, the women's suffrage movement, the progressive era of the early 20th century all started in the 1830s. And it was a religious revival that did that. And it was a unifying thing for the country. We'll have something, it may not be you know, a, a religious revival, but we'll have something that I think will alter our course for the better. I just had, want to ask another question on this topic because I think you're very insightful. Uh, your dad's generation, uh, Bob Dole's generation, they all went to war. There was 40-ish percent of the country that was either tied to a serviceman. They were either in the service, servicemen and women. They were either in the war or they were tied to it. Meaning my grandparents had two children in the war. My, my uncle Anthony, who I'm named after, was on Normandy Beach. He survived it, thank God. But they then come home and they feel that connectivity, whether they're in North Dakota, Florida, Texas, or New York, they were tied to each other. And there was a spree de corps there. And there was a, to use a, a law, a, an old word, a forgotten word, a noblesse oblige. Growing up where I did, I don't even know how to pronounce the goddamn word, but you get the point that I'm making. And so do you think that we've lost that national commitment? Do you think there's a way to get people to do that again? It doesn't necessarily have to be going to the military, but is there some kind of unifying thing that we should be thinking about uh, that helps us reestablish that national identity again? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the greatest generation certainly had that. And um, that has eroded the shared identity that defines what it is to be an American has, has eroded. Um, I don't think there's one thing that we can do. I think there's a multitude of things we have to do. One is to restore civics education in our schools. You don't know your past. It's kind of hard to know the present or the, what the future looks like. Two, um, in the political world, I think we, we need to um, support the candidates that are trying to find uh, a common, common ground to solve problems rather than make a point. Um, they, they have to be rewarded. You can't just, you can't punish, you can't defeat people that are, that are focused on the shared identity. Three, I think it's really important to recognize that uh, we are, there are two Americas and it's based on 
it's it's not based on race as much as it's based on class. Um, if you look at the book, uh, Charles Murray's book, Coming Apart, it's just breathtaking the uh, the changes that have taken place in the last 30 years. The haves, those that have intact families, those that are college educated, uh, those that have higher incomes are living the best life ever in American history. But there are a whole lot of people that are being left behind right now. And the acceleration of technology into our lives uh, is creating massive disruption. Not all, not all of it wonderful, all of, not all of it at all. So sure. uh, we have to focus on that as well. Um, the people that are doing well need to, need to recognize and get to know the people that aren't. Um, well, I mean, this is something that you, it was a, one of the key hallmarks of your success as governor was re-engineering the educational system in the state of Florida. And obviously we both agree on this, that we need to even the playing field K through 12, uh, because, you know, if you grow up in a certain zip code or a certain neighborhood, you're getting a better public school education than others. Is there, is there a chance we can do that, Jeb? Is there a chance to have that national movement, or that has to be done at a local level. What's your opinion of where education is K through 12 right now? And what would be some suggestions if a governor called you or a president or somebody said, okay, we got to fix this, what would you do? So I'm the chairman of the Foundation for Excellence in Education, and that's what we do. We work in 40 states. It is, uh, it is a state policy drives education. It's, it's executed at a local level but it should be a national priority. It doesn't have to be a federal government priority, just a national priority to recognize that if we're concerned about these, these big gaps that exist uh, in America today that are creating all sorts of friction, cultural and, and political and economic friction, then we better make sure every child has the capacity to achieve earned success um, and not, and not you know, perpetuate these, this two Americas that is now becoming evident for everybody. So um, the things that we should do is to have, I think, a command focus on pre-K to three so that, there, so that every child is functionally literate by the end of third grade, because that's when you start, uh, you're, you're reading uh, to learn in fourth grade, you're learning how to read up till third grade. And so ending social promotion, putting a real emphasis, particularly on low-income families, being able to access, uh, universal pre-K with a, a command focus on, on uh, reading is really important. That would be step number one. Step number two is there should be equity and funding. Um, some states have it, many states don't. Uh, there should be access to high quality schools and they should be funded equitably. Uh, and then third, I think there needs to be a recognition that um, college is not the aspirate, should not be the necessarily the aspiration for everybody. The focus ought to be on college and or career readiness for high school. We did those things uh, and made it a real commitment and parents be given more choices, particularly low-income families. I think we can resolve this. The idea that somehow that we are systemically incapable of allowing people to rise up, that the challenges are just impossible, is so self-defeating, so dangerous. Um, and, and I think we have to we have to kick that out of the of the uh, uh, of of our of our discussions. The left seems to be um, obsessed with this that life's not fair, therefore we can't do anything about it, uh, and that is dangerously pessimistic. Oh, I and I agree, and I and I think that the you know because you and I are obviously Republicans. I guess I'm not really even sure what that means anymore. We'd have to have that 
that, that would be a five hour conversation with us, not a soft talk, what it means to be a Republican at this point. But uh, we have to have a platform of equal opportunity for people. I'm, I'm all for unequal outcomes pursuant to people's dreams and ability to risk take and invest and capital allocate. But we got to help people get to the starting gate roughly, you know, in the same lane, if you will, or the same starting block. Uh, and you were obviously amazing at doing that in, in, in Florida. But let's turn it out of the pandemic. So now we have this pandemic, Jeb, that is exacerbating this issue. Uh, some of the richer people are getting even richer. Some of the poorer people are getting poorer. Uh, a lot of economists are calling this a K-shaped recovery where some are going this way and the other part of the country is going that way. Do you think we're in a K-shaped recovery? And if we are, how is that going to affect your ability to invest? How is that going to affect your ability to think about public policy? So uh, I, I don't know where we're going to end up. The letter is work in progress. So it's part of the alphabet for sure. But I don't know how we could be a W, it could be a K, who knows. Um, but it is, I think what we do know is that whatever the trends were prior to the pandemic, this massive disruption has only accelerated them. So the trends of, of unequal, um, you know, just the fact that in high income people have, have been doing better because of federal reserve policies and, and many other things and low income people, while they were doing better prior to the pandemic, the gaps were growing. And uh, so, so yes, I think there is, there's going to be uh, post pandemic, there's going to be um, serious issues about uh, uh, the, so, you know, who we are as a society. Uh, and, and I think there, there are some solutions to this if we recognize it to start with, but it's a serious problem. So from an investment point of view, um, I see the trends, I see a couple of things uh, happening that are, that are important. Um, I, we, we, we've been investing in um, how do you deal with frail elders in the proper way? The pandemic made it clear that institutional care, while it may be appropriate for some, isn't appropriate for a whole lot of families. That we need to find a way to provide support, particularly for low-income, frail elders in their home or in their community. And I think there's going to be a big trend towards uh, supporting uh, companies that are doing just that and do it at a lower cost with uh, better outcomes than, than nursing sure. homes. Um, I think there's going to be a focus on the home in general. Um, people are gonna work at home People are going to learn at home. People are going to use health technologies to stay, you know, to prevent illness at home. And so that's another trend, I think, in our society where there's good investing opportunities. And then finally, I'd say that digital infrastructure, which is becoming the new interstate highway system, needs to be, uh, there needs to be massive investment there. Because with 5G coming, um, there's, there's just, all sorts of uh, billions and billions of dollars will be invested in the digital infrastructure space. And right now, if you want to look at inequities, if you live in the rural areas, you know, you, you, very few people have access to um, broadband. If you're poor, you, have, you don't have access to devices. And so if there's going to be an, another stimulus CARES package, uh, I think there should be a massive commitment to building out the digital um, highway, the digital infrastructure, so that we can create a quality of opportunity in that regard as well. Because the home is going to be a place where people do business. When Google says they're not going to reopen their campus for another year and a half, um, and these kids, maybe, maybe they go back home. Maybe they go back to Nebraska, or maybe they go back to Indiana, and they can't access uh, broadband from their homes. 
even though they would want to live back there with a higher quality of life, that's wrong. And there's ways to solve this with philanthropy, with government, with business, making a strategic investments to deal with it. So before I, before I turn it over to John, because we've got a ton of questions coming in from the audience, I just have two more questions. I want to take you to your current business where you're now the founding managing partner of DocSquare Capital, uh, middle market private equity investment. You just mentioned the stuff that you're doing in elderly care. Tell us a little bit about your business. Tell us what excites you in the morning in terms of uh, what you're doing and where do you see the future of your business? So um, we're a merchant bank. We do two things. We have partnership arrangements where we earn up into people's businesses by helping them grow. Um, for example, Ag America is the largest non-bank lender in the ag space. Um, they'll do a billion dollars worth of loans this year. We're, we're um, significant partners in that. We're partners in a credit fund. Um, that's part of our business. So we, we're working with InvestCorp to, um, to, stake a, uh, to do a, a GP staking business to invest in private equity firms, which is very exciting. The second part of our business is we co-invest alongside private equity firms where we open up our network to help accelerate the growth of the businesses. And we've done eight of those in the last four years. We've invested roughly $240 million in separate SPVs. And we build, we, you know, we use our relationships to help accelerate uh, the, the sales and, and market opportunities of these businesses. Thank goodness all of them in the pandemic era have done well. And that's just pure luck because we weren't in retail or other things that have just been devastated. Um, they're thriving in this business. And what I've learned is if you invest in leadership really matters in business and in public life. And we're blessed to have CEOs of these businesses that are phenomenal and um, rose to the challenge. A lot of people cower in the corner, you know, in the fetal position when a crisis like the pandemic hit and the real leaders stop, step up. Stop talking about my colleague, John Dorsey, uh, governor. He can't, can't do that. I mean, it's just, just too many. There's just too many people on the call. You're embarrassing the poor kid when you talk I'm about glad, the fetal position. I'm glad he stopped sucking his thumb and you know, <laughs> came out from the corner. So yeah, I mean, this is, uh, this is a great time uh, to be in business in many ways because people rise to the challenge. And um, what I'm finding is that our investors uh, seem to be more focused on social impact now too. Uh, where that, that trend may have, may have accelerated in the COVID era as well. People want to make money. They want to make a difference too. They're seeing the challenges our country's facing and uh, they want to be, they want their investment to be purposeful as well. So, so Jeb, my last question, then John, I am going to turn it over to John. I want you to, because uh, you're a very thoughtful guy, you're a policy wonk, you're an entrepreneur, obviously a professor. I want you to imagine the best of America and where America could be in 10 years if we start thinking about the better angels of our personalities and the better angels of our experience as Americans and the greatness of our natural resources and et cetera. Tell us a, a vision of America that you think we could have if we start to go in that more unifying direction. You know, uh, during this really depressing time where our politics, we're, we're in a, you know, serious economic hardships for millions of Americans. We have a pandemic that's scaring everybody. Uh, our, our public leaders haven't been able to rise to the occasion like you would want in a, in a crisis like this. All of this is going around and it's depressing, but in, I think it was in April, I'm not remember exactly when it was, uh, 
my vision of what America is and can be is watching SpaceX go to the, the, the space station. Sure, over Memorial Day weekend, yeah. less, right? But, yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, really cool outfits, <laughs> very, you know, 21st century uh, spacesuits, elegant design, flawless execution, um, done at a low cost with massive innovation. To me, Elon Musk is what the future, the inspiring future for our country, and we need more of them. We need, we need to embrace entrepreneurial capitalism and risk-taking and uh, focus on the positive aspects of how that creates more opportunity for more people than any government program ever created. We gotta get back to our roots. And then we need to make sure that people, everybody has the capacity to rise up um, and, and, and not say the life circumstances make it impossible. If there are problems, fix them for crying out loud. Stop all of this, them and us, and start focusing on we. Uh, and and I, look, I'm confident that that's going to happen. I hope it accelerates after the 2020 election. I'm not, I don't, I'm not smart enough to know what form this will take. It may not even be political. It might just be all of us kind of saying, enough of this. We're going to begin to solve this at the local level. America is a bottom-up country. Maybe we start solving these problems and, and coming together community by community, and then the world, you know, the Washington changes because we've changed. That's my hope. And um, I think there's enough goodness in America and there's certainly enough entrepreneurship in America to, to imagine a really bright future. Well, I appreciate all that. I appreciate that sentiment. And I pray for that, uh, that outcome, uh, Governor. I'm going to turn it over to John. We got a, a ton of people here uh, that want to ask you a question. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up SpaceX because it was it was one of my follow up questions I was going to ask is that not only is SpaceX taking people uh, to the International Space Station and going into space, they're also launching thousands of satellites into space to build and basically blanket the Earth in uh, broadband. Lockheed Martin had a similar program that they shut down in 2001 because they didn't see a viable uh, financial future for it. But you know, what, what types of things can we do and what type of things are you doing in your business to create that digital uh, highway infrastructure that you mentioned? A, a Starlink from SpaceX is one example. First responders in Washington have been using it uh, to, to get broadband in remote areas as they try to fight these fires. But what are initiatives that you're either investing in or that you've seen or observed uh, that you think are particularly promising that we should put resources into? Um, we've invested in the largest private, privately owned cell tower company in the United States called Vertical Bridge that's expanding dramatically. Uh, very efficient business. There's lots of the amount of infrastructure necessary for 5G is exponentially more than what we have now. And so small sales, sales sites as well as uh, the, the traditional towers are going to be in high demand, irrespective of what SpaceX is doing you know, with satellites. There's, there's a need for all of that. Um, and I think there's a role for the federal government to, as Eisenhower did with the interstate highway system, to, um, to deal with the places where it is not economic, particularly the rural areas where um, there's a need for, for major investment. So this can be done in partnership. This can be done with private investing. This could be done in um, all sorts of ways with the government support. Uh, and there's lots of philanthropy that's interested in this as well because of the education challenges. It is shameful that we have something like 20 million kids that can't access learning because they don't have either a device or they can't afford access to broadband. So it, it, hopefully when we get to the point where there's a consensus on how to 
uh, provide support for people when they're hurting, that this will be an integral, integral part of it. Um, I've, I've been talking to lots of people around the country about this, and there seems to be a consensus that it's important to do it and accelerate it. We're presenting this Q&A in partnership with Strategic Worldviews. Uh, Jeb, you might have met our partner, Robert Wolf, at a, at a recent SALT conference. Robert was an ec economic advisor under President Obama. He's a contributor uh, to the Fox Business Network, and he's hopped on and is going to ask a couple questions. Robert, do you want to introduce yourself hey, to the Robert, audience? how you doing, buddy? Forward? Jeb, good to see you. Good to see you, too. God, even this Dem will say, boy, do we miss you. <laughs> <laughs> I like you. I like you. Your room rater, you get about a 9.2. You know, because I'm on Fox, you know, they don't even room rate us. But, you know, I tell you, you know, the, the, you've noticed you, that there's bias even on room raters. I'm telling you, it's unbelievable. Well, Jeff, I'm, I'm very happy to tell everybody I got a nine out of 10. For some reason, I was at a, I was at a one over a Scaramucci, which was like 111. But then something magical happened. I'm now nine out of a 10. You've so repented. That's, that's why. That's because of your opinion on Donald Trump. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing. We always bring it right back to Anthony. Um, uh, I have two questions, you know, um, one political and one putting your, your, your governor hat on. Um, so on the political one, it's just more of a question that I think a lot of us Dems, you know, this Lincoln project has exploded where, you know, former Republican advisors are getting together and forming their own, we need to take our party back. The first way to do it is, you know, literally help Joe Biden win. I mean, theoretically, that's their first move. And then that is, I guess, the transitional phase to go back to what would be deemed a conservative party again, that seems to be sane. So one question is why aren't people like yourself and other former politicians, why are not like Lincoln Project where it's more on the public relations advertising side, but why aren't some of the more sane, smart, intelligent ones coming together like military has or economists have to kind of say, hey, listen, this is not the right direction. How do we take it back? So that's one question. I'm just curious why people and thought leaders like you and the GOP aren't kind of taking our party back. Not um, there are a lot of people doing that. Uh, I'm at the stage of my life where I've taken a step back from politics. Um, I'm disgusted by what's going yeah. on in Washington. It's, it's heartbreaking to see, uh, but I've got a business. Yeah. In fact, you know, a lot of our investors ask, are you going to get back in the fray? Because they don't want me, you know, I'm, I'm running a business that requires my attention and I have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that that my investors, uh, our investors do well. So uh, I, I call out the ugliness when I see it. Yeah. I don't have to do it. I mean, if I'm, I haven't been drawn uh, into the thing like Anthony is doing, you know, uh, it's just because I, it's not, it's not helpful um, to get into, uh, to get into that situation. Now, the question about the Lincoln project is interesting. I, what I, I think their ads are great. I don't like the fact that they feel compelled to take out all Republican senators along the way. Mm -hmm. I think, I think we're, we could be in a very dangerous situation if, um, and the fact that uh, Vice President Biden is not capable of saying, I can't tell you what I'm gonna do as it relates to stacking the court. Yeah. That's a, I mean, the, the, the simple answer would have been, no, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna do that. But he hasn't been able to, to give a yes or no answer on that. That's kind of disturbing. Eliminating the filibuster rule across the board, 
could create some real problems. So uh, I'm a conservative. I believe in limited government. My party has abandoned those principles temporarily, but um, you know, I can't embrace the idea of just massive uh, power being shifted to Washington, D.C. So I'm conflicted. Yeah, I would respond, but you're the VIP and people don't really care to hear me. So I'm going to, my second question is more, I'm asking. Hey, I, hope, I hope whatever you were going to say, I hope you're right. I hope that you were, you're going to say that Biden's not that kind of person, that he'd be able to withstand the pressures of the progressive wing of your party and, and he'll, he'll be back to trying to find consensus. Yeah, That's my prayer. I, I think he'd be the best unifier for our country without, without question. The difference is going to be more stark. From your lips to God's ears, brother. Yeah. Um, now, you know, Florida, so Anthony and I and John and Narelle, we've recently had on both Ron Klain and Tom Bossert to really, we've actually had them on three times collectively to talk about COVID and everything that they said away from the PPE and the mask, I'm not talking the healthcare side, but on the economic side, that it all, this is where I think Joe Biden's been right, to get a real recovery. It's predicated on reopening and getting our arms around COVID and the pandemic. We all are seeing every day what's happening in Florida where the current governor is reopening the state um, completely with, you know, many of us look at without any real protocol. And actually we see a lot of the mayors just really disagree. Um, so, and we know that the numbers are going, the cases are going up and up in Florida. How do, how do you see the right balance between the pandemic and reopening, getting the economy back, which is really the, the million dollar question that we all need to know and no one has solved for? You know, it's been disappointing that, uh, the, that, that this has become part of the hyper-partisan, hyper-political kind of environment. The president hasn't been able to do what you want a president to do in a crisis, which is to lay out the facts, show some empathy for the plight of a whole lot of people that are stuck in their homes and lost their jobs, um, give people a sense that helps on the way, give people hope, and constantly communicate where we are. So in, with, in the absence of that, uh, there's a lot of confusion. For example, Florida's infection rates are actually, per 100,000, are now in the, they're like at uh, 11, which is nearing where New York, New York's bumped up to about five. So the, the states with the biggest problems right now are North, North Dakota, Iowa, they're all in the upper Midwest um, for whatever reason. So I think, I think the bias ought to be to take action, to, to open, to have schools open, but have a policy that you're constantly adjusting based on the conditions on the ground. If there's a, an acceleration of an outbreak, you count. I mean, Florida's a big state, so Miami's very different than Jacksonville. And if there's nothing going on in Jacksonville, we need to open up the economy. Think of all the people that can't get a job because they're stuck at home. Think of the, I mean, the, the amount of uh, drug abuse, uh, child abuse, domestic violence has increased during the pandemic. Now, for some, I mean, in my life, I, I'm, you know, I'm the healthiest I've ever been. I get to spend the night with my, the wife, my, the love of my life. I haven't traveled. I haven't left 33134 zip code. Uh, and for a lot of people like me, this is a this is the most productive time that we've been in. But there are a tremendous number of people that have to get back to work. So 
taking all the social costs into consideration and explaining why it's important to open up and depoliticizing it, I think is important. Um, finally, the, you know, ultimately, the answer to this is that uh, we need a vaccine. I mean, you're not, this isn't going to go away. Um, I think up north, there's going to be bigger outbreaks as people have to stay at home, right? Stay inside because of the weather. And um, we need a vaccine. And once again, there needs to be clarity about uh, its effectiveness and how it's going to be uh, distributed. There should be you know, discussions about that constantly so that people have confidence that a vaccine is gonna work. How's your business? Robert, I think you're muted. Uh, Governor, uh, I wanna- Yeah, business wanna... is going well. There you we'll, go, We'll take that off at another time, but we're <laughs> kind of doing what you're doing, but it seems like you're doing it at a bigger scale, but we're hanging in there, thank you. I got that. Governor, I wanna talk about agriculture. You mentioned that Ag America, uh, which you're involved in, is one of the biggest non-bank lenders to the agriculture space. Obviously, a lot of farmers have suffered as a result of the trade wars that we found ourselves in and other factors as well. But what's the future of American agriculture and how do we get it back on track? Well, um, the future of American agriculture is full of technology, full of innovation, uh, full of increased productivity. We've led the world consistently and I think we'll continue to do so. Uh, I also think that the rural parts of the United States are going to be uh, going to have a renaissance. Um, people are beginning to realize that densely populated urban areas with all sorts of challenges, crumbling infrastructure, increases in crime that have taken place may not be the best place to, um, to raise a family. And so uh, I think, I, I think what, will, what will support agriculture is that there will be in this vast country They'll start, you'll start seeing people moving to smaller towns uh, and smaller cities, and that will support agriculture as well. The Trump administration has provided massive support, uh, direct support to, to agriculture, which I, I, I don't even know if the money has been appropriated or it's just by executive order, it's, it's gone out. That can't be sustained over, over the long haul. I mean, there has to be markets around the world that we regain. Um, the Chinese, if they, if they fulfill their commitment, uh, that in and of itself will sustain um, major parts of Florida, uh, the, of U.S. agriculture. Um, the, uh, the protein increase in Asia by itself will, will create long-term stability. So I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. What we found is that uh, land prices in, in the uh, agriculture areas across the country haven't gone down. Uh, farm income has, but it's been supplanted by government support. So we have a question that came in from a great friend of SALT, Steve Case, who's the founder, former founder and CEO of AOL. He now has a fund called Rise of the Rest that hits yeah. on some of the themes that you just mentioned. They're investing in you know, secondary U.S. cities outside of Silicon Valley, outside of New York. Uh, they're investing a lot in places like Florida. As governor of Florida, you help diversify that economy. Uh, and you helped turn it into a startup state that's still, you know, that's perpetuated today as well. Uh, what were the key lessons that other states should consider so that the country as a whole uh, can create more jobs and, and create more entrepreneurship in those sort of forgotten places where quality of life isn't rising quite as fast as it is in, in other primary U.S. cities? Well, um, Steve uh, could answer that question better than I, uh, <laughs> for sure, uh, because he's investing exactly in, in 
the kind of communities that uh, have the potential to rise up. And I admire him greatly for doing it. And I hope he's making money along the way so it's sustainable. And I think he will. Look, the first objective for any state or any community is to make sure that there is, that, that every person has the building blocks to be able to pursue their dreams. Not everybody's gonna be an entrepreneur, but if you, you know, at an early age, you learn how to read, and then there's rigorous uh, learning along the way, you have options that otherwise you won't have. And so first and foremost, in every corner of our country, there should be a command focus on raising the bar as it relates to education outcomes. That th those are the places where you're going to find the talent to be able to create uh, the, the startup economy. Secondly, I think there's, there's, uh, it's going to become clearer and clearer that along with talent, you can't make it impossible for people to get the first rung of the ladder. So, I mean, Silicon Valley is a phenomenal place for the creation of businesses. But if you're a 25 year old kid, uh, you, you may not ever get, be able to buy a home. Um, the costs are so extraordinary. And so I think business climate issues are really important as well. And keeping, making life affordable for the next generation is hugely important. And Florida's done a pretty good job on that. We, got, we have work to do as it relates to um, our, our K-12 education system. Our colleges, I think, are doing a, a very good job of affordability. There's, there's, there's room to go. Everybody can do better, for sure. But um, I'm proud of the fact that our business climate is, is, is as good as any in the country. So I know you're focused largely on investing in the United States, but we have a question uh, from, I think, one of our uh, members who's outside of the United States. And, you know, your brother certainly didn't believe when he was president in isolationism. He believed in going and helping solve issues related to disease in places like Africa. He believed in you know, trying to spread American values around the world. As a country, how should we be looking at our neighbors in Latin America? Your wife, you met her in Mexico. She's Mexican-American. You studied Latin American studies in college. How should we, thinking about, we be thinking about Mexico and Latin America in general, how we can either from a public you know, government perspective, invest capital in those places to improve outcomes, to you know, help address some immigration issues and, and asylum issues? Uh, how should we be thinking about that? Well, you know, living in Miami where 60% of the three plus million residents are, were born outside uh, the United States, most of whom were from Latin America or the Caribbean. Uh, I'm really, we, we live in, in effect, we live in Latin America in many ways. So uh, I think the first step is to say Latin America is not the back backyard, it's the front yard. That it's not a place exclusively where there's problems uh, and that we build a wall to keep them out. Uh, it's a place where there's huge opportunities economically for our businesses and opportunities for us. If you think about how the world is, is, is changing, one of the biggest, huge, biggest change could be the delinking of China and the United States. Not just technology, but supply chain issues. Certainly politically that, that delinking is happening. There's a broad consensus left and right that we need to change our relationship with China. And China's not waiting for us to figure that out. They're, they're doing the exact same thing on their side. So reshoring uh, a lot of manufacturing uh, will be a huge opportunity. And Mexico is poised to take full advantage of that. And the United States should embrace that. We should have a North American strategy as it relates to energy, as it relates to 
um, all sorts of industries in our, um, in, in our front yard. Uh, but administration after administration has kind of, the, the, you know, basically it's been benign neglect. And um, it's too bad because it's, it's, a, it's a south of our border and to the east of us is a, you know, 600 million people with big opportunities to grow where the United States could play a constructive role in dealing with some of the social challenges, but also view it as a huge economic opportunity. Governor Bush, thanks so much for joining us. I'm gonna leave the last word to Robert and Anthony uh, if they have any parting words or thoughts for you. Yeah, in, in your honor, I, look what I got. I got the Key West Mile Zero Cup. I'm drinking my coffee from this morning, okay? God bless you in the state of Florida. You're an amazing guy. I miss you, Jeb. I hope I get a chance to see you soon. Yeah, let's go. Let's go have a have a dinner somewhere where where they allow us to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're going to go back to Rayos because I know you love that place, Jeb. That was I unbelievable. The, I know you love the stories <laughs> that are told up in Rayos. Okay. So Jeb, I, 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 I just want to. I'm going to bring you back there, Jeb. I promise. All right. We've chatted about it, but for the people who don't know this, and it's one of my most famous pieces of memorabilia. But your dad, when he handed Babe Ruth oh. the book at Yale of his autobiography. Yeah. In 1947 or 48, when your dad, Poppy, was the captain of the Yale team. I have that signed by your dad. And I think that is one of the best, maybe the best ever, intersection of politics and sports. And um, I remember you and I have talked about it. Um, and I think it's over your dad's fireplace at, his, uh, at the museum. It's, but it's, one of the, it's one of the great pictures. And whoever has not seen that, it's worth looking up. But uh, Jeb, maybe end on everyone loves the babe and everyone loves your dad. So Yeah, exactly. And this was after he served in the military, went back to Yale. They had little George W., he was born in New Haven. The most Texan of, of my siblings was a Connecticut Yankee. Uh, and, and he, uh, and Babe Ruth was, was very frail, kind of on his last years. And it was an amazing picture. Who would have, who would have known? Um, and, and you're right. My dad was captain of the baseball team. By the way, they got to the finals, the NCAA finals, two years running when he was captain. They lost to USC one year and I think University of Oregon or something, another West Coast uh, school. So Yale was a baseball powerhouse under the leadership of George H.W. Bush. Yeah. So well, fantastic. As always, thank you. You bet. Thanks, Robert. God bless you, Jeb. Okay, we'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks, guys.